Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right. All right. Here we go. Welcome to the Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. That's my new intro. I made another one. Last week, I had another bird sound. Basically, what I decided was that the theme song was too long. I just want to get to the show. I don't think anybody needs to hear the same song every week. So I made a decision, and uh, I just made (laughs) whatever that was, and that's going to be the new intro for the time being. I'm feeling restless in 2021. My guest today is Michael Bible. His new novel is called The Ancient Hours. It's available from Melville House. It is a fable of the American South set in the summer of the year 2000. It's about a tragedy. It's about a crime. It's about tragic lives. It's about disaffected teenagers in a small southern town. It's a beautiful book. I just read it recently. It is told in a kaleidoscopic fashion, multiple timelines, multiple voices. It is a deft examination uh, of a tragedy, an all-too-American tragedy. Victims, witnesses, perpetrators the condemned, everybody featured in the ancient hours by Michael Bible. That conversation is coming up in just a second. Today's episode is brought to you by DeZank Books, publisher of As You Were, the new memoir by David Trombley. In a starred review, Kirkus calls As You Were, quote, an incandescent addition to both Native American letters and the literature of the Iraq and Afghan wars, end quote. As You Were is a hypnotic, brutal, and unstoppable coming-of-age tale. It delves deeply into one family's cycle of brutality and denial of their own identity. As You Were by David Tremblay, available now from DeZank Books. So I had a really nice time talking with Michael Bible. He is originally from North Carolina, where the ancient hours is set. His work has appeared all over the place, everywhere from the Oxford American to the Paris Review Daily, Al Jazeera America, ESPN the Magazine, Tyrant Magazine. He's also a former bookseller at Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi. He has made the rounds. And he is a fine writer, and I'm very pleased to get to share this conversation with you right now. Here he is, folks. This is Michael Bible, and his new novel, One More Time, is called The Ancient Hours. There is a cross-section of uh, 
religion and violence in the South, particularly in Southern literature. And I was really interested in that and, and how human beings cross that line into violence and maybe into a little bit of like madness or uh, how they're pushed to do something they wouldn't normally ever do. And uh, so, you know, there are a lot of Iggy's that I knew growing up that maybe never committed a crime like he did. And then, you know, there are, of course, like, you know, stories in the news that, you know, too many to name of people like him that kind of broke and, and resorted to violence for whatever reason. But I wanted to give it a give that character a full look you know, try and investigate why people come to that. And in a larger sense, what that decision means for the rest of the community and how they have to like repair themselves and kind of continue on. And so it was first like the choice of why to inflict that trauma. And the answer regrettably often is because trauma was inflicted upon them and that cycle of violence, I think, violence and redemption and forgiveness, and then ultimately sort of violence again, uh, is a very religious theme. And uh, I think I see it play out not only in the, the theology of Christianity and in the history of Christianity, but also like in our daily lives. And so I wanted to kind of see how that would operate in a small town. Um, yeah, I think I, I think that's sort of where, I mean, maybe Iggy started with me a little bit too, that alienation, and then uh, expounding upon it is where I sort of arrived where he was. Um, so yeah, maybe that answers your question. I'm not sure. but So you're raised yeah. in a small town called Statesville in North Carolina. Your dad, um, you said a bit ago, was an eye doctor. It's like uh -huh. the, the town eye doctor. Um, I'm, I'm imagining he had patients from the region, not just the, the town. But um, right. You're raised in the Presbyterian Church, and you just kind of said that Iggy came from you and maybe some of your youthful disaffection or feelings of alienation. I, I'm wondering like just how religious your family was and if you had, you know, like an identity in your family as the apostate or some, somebody who wasn't necessarily as into it, or did you go through a period where you were like a really fervent believer and then have a falling out or like, how did that work? I think, yeah, all of the above. I think I, you know, there was a moment where I was headed maybe to the seminary that was probably like, you know, two weeks and then uh, was ardently, you know, the opposite uh, and have kind of settled into a, you know, uh, maybe charming agnosticism or something. Nothing like too serious <laughs> or one way or the other, you know. Yeah, I uh, I was raised Catholic and I never like it just never took for me. Like I never was able mm -hmm. to. I don't know if I had I don't know if I had the right teachers you know what i'm saying i don't know if i had the right instruction or the right perspective like maybe if i had had a professor at sewanee explaining it to me i might have had uh, you know an easier time with it but 
for whatever reason, yeah. it didn't work for me. And I guess like when you talked about like investigating Iggy um, and why a person crosses over into violence, um, especially as it relates to a religious community, um, I'm wondering like, what did you learn? Like, did, can you, can you encapsulate it? Did you come up with any answers? Uh, well, I, th nothing definitive. I don't think I, I, and that was, and that is an answer in a way that there isn't one definitive thing. There is no revelation that comes from it. Uh, except that, or at least one thing that I, I started to understand was that people are very, very complex and what they do or choose to do in any given situation is predicated on a million decisions that happened before they were born. I mean, how interconnected the world is and, and, and the endlessness of possibilities is kind of laughable in our like human understanding of justice, you know? And so you know, I, I think religion didn't take from me, but I do see, I, I hold a reverence for it, for the kind of, you know, 3000 year old strangeness that is human religion or something, because it starts to account for these possibilities and uh, see people as more than just singular acts and as kind of complex human beings. And the church was the first place that I started to understand that in a way. Uh, the problem became when it started to encroach into politics or, or into like, um, you know, rulemaking and, and that kind of stuff that I didn't quite couldn't operate with it. But, you know, it's explanation of like the human condition is, is kind of interesting. I, I don't know. Um, and so I guess I, I, you asked me, what did I learn from Iggy? I, I think there's a lot of these people. I mean, you know, the book came out, uh, in December and pretty soon after there was this bombing in Nashville and I was kind of like immediately I knew who this guy was, you know, it, it's even before you kind of knew it was like. He was this disaffected person. He was alone. He was, you know, facing all of these things. And there's a story behind him, you know, and, and why he came to that point. But I, I don't know if there's any lesson or, or you know, final pronouncement, but just that, that people are a lot more complex than they seem to be, I think, maybe. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. 
Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Yeah, it's funny. You talk about like this archetype of the the disaffected, um, I guess, I mean, rural... I'm thinking I have a, I grew up in suburban Indianapolis, at least part of my childhood. And there were definitely Iggy's in my like large public high school. It was a pretty good sized suburb, but, um, and it wasn't necessarily rural though. My neighborhood like abutted a pig farm. So I guess like to some people Mm. it would be totally rural. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, not like Statesville, you know what I'm saying? It's a little bit more urban than Statesville, but still like it seems like what we're talking about is a certain kind of white dude, frankly. Yeah. Um, not that there can't be disaffected people from other backgrounds, but I think like, you know, for the purposes of this conversation and in the context of your book and the, uh, the scene that we're dealing with, like it's a kind of white dude who, you know, often comes from a home where there's abuse or, um, addiction or some combination thereof, you know, some kind of like disquiet at home uh and then there might be mental illness um financial difficulty religion you know it's like it's a potent mixture do you see what i'm getting at i don't know i just yeah yeah it's america i mean that's like that is what the rest of america is i mean you know we're you know we're living in a in an oligarchy essentially you know that that we're that we're living in a country with a lot where, where a lot of people are struggling, and very few people are not. And I think all of those things conspire to create the conditions for these people to lash out. You know. Um, well, I mean, and, and I don't not, not yeah, to not to get too, not to get too political, uh, but. Did you, in watching the insurrection on January 6th, the attack on the Capitol, like, did Iggy come to mind for you on that day? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, there's been a slow wave of, of, you know, people falling into this madness, you know, falling into this uh, story, this lie that they're being told and you know it seems so uh cinematic or 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 intense and 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 i mean like unprecedented but you look back in history and it's not i mean that 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 people fall prey to these kinds of ideas and then are so captivated and captured by them that they resort to violence is like the story of man you know uh and so I, I, I think Iggy's story is just that he's captured and captivated by his own demons, you know, and, and they're very personal to him. And I, I would gather that many of the insurrectionists have sort of personal demons themselves, but they're, you know, intoxicated on this larger lie that uh, um, drives them to this violence. I think it's similar to Iggy for sure. Also, uh, Percy Grimm in Light in August is is I think the example of this in in 
that Faulkner kind of predicted long before uh, any of this was uh, a possibility. And, and that, that kind of alienated soldier who was unable to go to war, you know, Percy Graham was kind of came of age between the world wars. And so he wasn't able to go off to Europe and fight. And I think, you know, a lot of the people that saw in the Capitol were veterans too, or maybe they're at an age where they have a lot of pent up uh, pride and, and patriotism that they, and they don't know where to, to put it. And so they, they put it into this kind of white identity uh, and it's terrifying, but uh, yeah, that's, and that's it. That's the American story, unfortunately. Yeah. And I mean, I want to like underscore something you said a bit ago about um, how many people in this country are struggling, which I think a lot of times our political leadership and, you know, the privileged few among us tend not to be able to access in a meaningful way. There's just like a profound lack of empathy and understanding when it comes to the reality of um, what people are up against out there, which I think is at the heart of a lot of this. You know, it's a definitely a big piece of it. And one of the statistics, and I'm going to, I'm probably going to mess up the the number exactly, but it's like one of these astonishing statistics where like, you know, more than half of Americans, 50% plus Americans, or maybe it's even more, don't have $500 in savings. You know what I'm saying? It's like one of those just shocking uh, numbers to contemplate. And we wonder why birth rates are down. (laughs) We wonder why people are pissed off and looking for meaning in conspiracy theories. Uh, I think too about uh, contemporary American spirituality, particularly as it pertains or pertains to uh, Christianity, you know, like the Catholicism of my youth certainly felt this way. I imagine you might've experienced something similar as a Presbyterian I think you could trace it certainly through the evangelical community, but the idea that I'm getting at is this resistance to change and this idea of there being a, a better future in the past. Um, and I feel like the church of my youth failed me in some ways because it wasn't speaking to an experience that I had any familiarity with and it seemed really antiquated and I can't help but look at what happened on January 6th or what happens in your novel and not want to place some blame at the feet of uh, religious leaders who in their dogmatism become so rigid that they don't have anything meaningful to offer a huge percentage of their uh, parishioners or their flock or whatever. Like, I don't mean to ramble, but do you get what I'm saying? Absolutely. And, and yeah, I, I think there's a, a, a greater responsibility on the shoulders of those people. I, I mean, you know, but, but American religion, I think in what we're talking about is essentially a grift. I, I mean, the, the, the religion, even of my, your, what you're talking about, my youth or your youth, uh, there was, there was a version of it that kind of had a 
Frank Capra, like, you know, uh, Jimmy Stewart kind of feel to it, you know, uh, the small town and, and the people sort of helping them out. But underneath it, there was a simmering like uh, racial, you know, apologism for race, for racism and and, and, and misogyny and, and homophobia. But now it, it seems like the kind of uh, leadership in the church is just a grift. I mean, the, the, the prosperity gospel, the, the jets and the, you know, the, the, what's this guy in Houston with this huge house? The Joel Osteen. Um, Joel Osteen. I mean, <laughs> it, it's like, I mean, have you seen the show The Righteous Gemstones? No. Uh-uh. It's a Danny McBride show, and it's kind of a, a spoof on the Falwell dynasty. Uh, and and but it, before, it, it, before you continue, I just, for, yeah. my, for the benefit of my listeners, I mean, you mentioned the prosperity gospel, which maybe not everybody is familiar with, but isn't it, in a nutshell, just this idea that if you're, if you're rich, it means because you're holy, like you're, you're doing well religiously, and so right. this largesse yeah. is deserved. Right. Or, or, I mean, it's just a grift. It's, it's that, you know, if you just pray hard enough and you're faithful enough, you'll earn money. And that's the only thing that's stopping you. And by the way, you know, don't forget to tithe and and give us 10% of whatever you're making and all of that. I mean, uh, but I, 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 you know, back to guess what I was, was, was just saying is that it, it almost becomes an absurdity and, and look like, uh, Trump certainly benefited from that that uh, captive audience of evangelicals on Sunday mornings, uh, and they spoke his language and he spoke their language. And so, yeah, of course, I think it falls to those people. But most of them are, are grifters. the The real work that's being done in in churches now is, uh, you know, the sort of Jimmy Carter people and 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 the the churches like in georgia um that won the senate back i mean those are the people that are down there doing day in day out work uh not these not the joel olsteins of the world or the you know jerry falwells they're yeah. just con men you know yeah i feel i feel uh whenever i hear about like the christian left like i think of jimmy carter as like the perfect uh, example of that um like, I probably don't agree with his particular take on theology, but like, I can't help but admire the guy. Like, he's, he walks the walk. You know, he's like building, he's like in his 90s, he's out like building houses for the poor and um, trying to practice love and kindness. And like, however you come to that, like, I'm all for it. And we need m- more of that, you know, and l- less of the, the grifty, you know, element that you're describing. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, uh, we'll see where it goes. I mean, I think we're, we're, you know, we're a secular society essentially now, and we kind of all worship at the altar of celebrity and, uh, and money-making. And, and so that makes sense that our religious, uh, leaders would be the same thing. I mean, they're essentially just influencers branded, you know, they're brands, um, and that's and we just had a brand that was the president, you know. Uh, so yeah, it all feels very discombobulating and 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 futuristic and strange. But also, but also like, I mean, I guess I, like with regard to the ancient hours, did you write the book in the midst of the Trump presidency, or was it something that came to you before? 
I was sort of looking, I, I, I sort of seeing this coming before Trump. I, I mean, the Tea Party, the like, the sort of pull of that, I, I hesitate to say madness or to pathologize it. I, I don't mean that. I just mean like, whatever that urge was, uh, that disaffection, it was there before him. He just was like a bright, shiny object they could all, you know, and he could use that energy for his own, uh, gain. But, uh, I've been thinking about this for a while, um, and, and seeing these kinds of people, uh, come up, uh, in our consciousness here and there. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, Travis Bickle and, 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 um, taxi driver and, and, you know, the, the Columbine shooters, the, there's, you know, this has been around for a long time. Uh, that kind of personalized violence, even even the self-immolation, the monks that that Iggy aspires to replicate. Uh, I'm always interested in in the, the personal reasons why these things happen, and and the story immediately behind it. It's always fascinating. It's it's never the one we're ever told. It's never the headline. It's the you know. The, the body of the thing you know that's or, what kind of interested me or like the paragraph at like the end of the news story where you're like oh that's interesting like i didn't realize his father was a you know a career criminal or whatever it is they, they tend to bury in these stories and um i think a lot of times we think about the perpetrators of violence especially like these young men who uh, commit these horrific uh, acts and it's very easy to want to just caricature them as pure evil. Um, I suppose sometimes it's hard not to go there. Like I'm thinking of the guy who um, shot up Sandy Hook. I mean, that guy's just such a mess. Like that is uh, as as cold-blooded as I could possibly imagine. But, um, you know, even there, if you start to dig around into the actual life and the, the story there, um, you can't help but find a much deeper narrative and more dimension. Yeah, I mean, and it's and a complex story. I mean, he wasn't born that person, or maybe he was. Uh, but, you know, even if he was born with the same genetics, there's a possibility that he wouldn't have done that. And, you know, we, we never know. We, 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 we can't really know how people are affected. I, I heard this thing, I, I don't remember where, that like fate is character. Like in a certain sense, it's true. It's like he became that because that's what he was. And that's where he, you know, the things that were pressing upon him caused him to act out. But he was a deeply, deeply disturbed person. And I think if we don't take the time to understand why and how they came to be that way, like we don't, there's no way to solve the problem or to mitigate the violence. It just continues and worsens and grows. And, um, you know, then, then stuff like, like what happened at the Capitol happens, it overflows, you know? So, yeah, yeah. I'm reading a book right now, uh, about it involves suicide and it's nonfiction. It's a memoir. Um, and it's an excellent book. It's called, uh, let me see here. It's called, uh, certain and impossible events. And, uh, there is in the book, the author references this thing called like, I think it's called like the upstream downstream 
approach where you want to try to get people, you know, get to people before they get in the stream, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, as opposed mm-hmm. to when they're like floating downstream past you and they're already in the water, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's kind of what you're speaking to when it comes to, you know, uh, Dylan Roof or, you know, Iggy in your book, somebody who, you know, ends up at this kind of crisis point and acts out violently, you know, the time to help that person ideally would have been way further upstream, you know, before they got too far down into the, uh, mire. Yeah. And, and I think also looking at our responsibility as a society in, in that, that we have to look at what's rotten in our society. If we're going to, you know, stop these people from falling into, uh, madness or to, to, you know, this, this, this propensity for evil and violence. Um, and I think that starts at what you were talking about before, which is building up, um, you know, an economy that works for people. That's not just simply leaving people behind, you know, uh, you know, this has sort of been lost in the Trump era, but, you know, it was one of the worst for deaths of despair, which is such a, ominous thing to think of that people would just die of um just the lack of of the most basic resources and and with alcoholism and suicide and all these things and i i think you know i'm, I'm hoping there's a a corner to be turned now a page to be turned and that we can kind of look at some of these issues and 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 uh and try and change things but yeah i i think it's we have to we have to take a look at who these people are and, and really try and understand them. That's, uh, I think that's sort of what I was trying to do in the book at least. Yeah, no, I get it. I like, and I like the, like, I like the approach that you took, you know, because these problems can seem so massive and they are massive, you know, but I think as an individual who cares about seeing things change for the better, it can be overwhelming to consider it. And, you know, especially when you're working like in a macro sense. And I think what you managed to do with the ancient hours is to try to isolate, you know, a, a small handful of characters, uh, centrally Iggy, but, you know, he's got, uh, what is it, Chloe and Paul, um, you know, it's kind Cleo, of... Cleo, yeah. Or Cleo, sorry. Um, mm-hmm. This kind of, uh, this trio of outsidery kids who find each other and find relief in each other but, you know, who are all in their own ways damaged and in danger and potentially dangerous, um, I suppose. So um, it makes the the issues that we're talking about seem more manageable. And it kind of allowed you to do through fiction uh, a sort of case study. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I that's sort of what I wanted to do is to, to what, how, what if I set one of these events uh, in a town like the one I grew up in? Um, and see how it would echo out and affect the rest of the town. And so that's kind of one surface of it. But another one is, is trying to understand how time operates on people and how it changes their perception of not only like an event that happened, but like who they are. And so I tried to jump big leaps in time with these characters and see what they might be doing, you know, 20 years after the events. 
at the beginning of the book and uh, you know see if I could pin down some experience of how time changes as we get older and and how we look back on things um, so that was sort of another piece of the puzzle as well did you ever have as a child any in Statesville and in, in small town North Carolina did you ever I don't know. Were there any like comparable events, you know, acts of violence? You know, I think these things always affect us. Even you know, we could live in Manhattan and it would affect us if it was in our, um, you know, little universe. But I think especially like in a small town where you don't see a lot of, um, crime or violent crime, um, you know, if something does happen, it can really, I think, rearrange people's minds, you know, it can have a really disorienting effect. Did you have, any experiences with that as a kid? I think no. I mean, nothing as dramatic as what's in the book or, uh, you know, any number of other kind of mass shootings or something like that. But, you know, it was a quieter kind of despair. You know, it would just be like someone that lived on our block committed suicide one time. And I didn't know them. And, I, you know, I, I kind of remembered seeing them but i remember my mom telling me that and it just it, it there were stranger kind of quieter tragedies all the time um that you just kind of lived through um and but if you go back you know there was none that while well, i was living there at that particular time but if you go back not too far into the past it, it gets to be a pretty uh, desperately violent place. Uh, all of America does. Uh, you know, we start scratching the surface and there's, uh, you know, too many of these things to count, you know, before the internet and, and 24 hour news, like these things would happen in quiet little hamlets. Uh, and, and it would just be news in that little town. You know, I think that's why like a book like, um, like, you know, Truman Capote, in cold blood is so interesting it, or when it came out, it was, was because he, he was really investigating what happened uh, in this murder that normally would have just been a small little uh, headline in a newspaper somewhere. And uh, you know, all of the reverberations of it and, 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 and how it comes into being uh, putting that microscope on it. Uh, it's just a, it's, it's interesting. So yeah, I think it's, you know, it was sort of an ambient thing, but it wasn't like a direct uh, parallel event. One of the things I remember, it kind of like haunts me whenever I think about it, is there was, very, you speak of quiet tragedies or these kinds of things happening subsurface and without much attention placed on them. Uh, when I was in high school, I remember one day hearing about a kid who I didn't even know. I couldn't tell you his name even. Uh, I went to, I graduated with 700 kids in my class. So it was like one of these public high schools. And um, I just remember hearing that somebody had gotten expelled because they found a pistol in his locker, like a, mm. lo a loaded weapon. He brought a loaded weapon to school. And to be honest with you, this was like the early 90s. Uh, I wasn't too phased. <laughs> I hmm. think my friends, it was like, oh, wow, God. I, like, I think even like I felt like it was a little harsh, you know, like, wow, that was mm. harsh because it was before, it was just before school shootings became a thing. But I think back to it and like what, you know, obviously with uh, all that we've been through in the years since, 
you realize how that could have potentially been uh, a complete horror, you know? So it's just weird uh, to, to think back on that and to wonder like, who was he and what, what the hell was going on? Right. And what happened to him and where is he now? And uh, yeah, I mean, there were, there were a lot of those that, you know, I remember, I mean, there was a family, uh, it was like a, it was a kid that was on my brother's sports team or something, wrestling team. And, you know, he had a sister and his parents and the dad was like a lawyer or something, you know, prominent. And they were kind of just a family that we knew. And then one night, I think it was his mother and sister or maybe his sister and father were killed in a car accident. He was paralyzed. And then it was just this like incredibly terrible, sad thing. They hit a pothole or something. And then, you know, he was paralyzed and kind of made a recovery and he would kind of come back out and you would see him around. And then it would just be like years, like five years later, like you heard that he killed himself. And it would just be these strange chapters in people's lives and how quickly it could go from something so Norman Rockwell to just a kind of deep sadness. And like, I think there was one surviving family member and, you know, how do people pick up from these, these things? And that, that also was of great interest to me too. You know, these quiet tragedies that maybe don't live outside of the town square, you know, the, the town that they happen in, what happens to those people? So, uh, that was also an impetus too, I think. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. It's funny how big of an impact, something that happens, you know, at arm's length or at even a greater distance, how big of an impact it can have on people. And oftentimes I think the, the people at the center of the story have no idea the, the ripple effect, you know, you speak of the, mm. su- the suicide on your block, for example. You know, I, I think suicide in particular has a way of infecting people, kind of haunting people. Uh, that's certainly been the mm. case with me, you know, lo- having lost a friend to suicide and um, I guess a couple of friends, really. But uh, if you count in, like an OD as a suicide. But um, like even if I hear about something like that, you know, at, at a distance, I will think about it. Uh, to a degree that mm. would probably surprise the immediate survivors. The, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I think we're all conditioned to kind of, uh, it's strange, like our, our, our relationship to death, you know, you always want to know what it was, you know, someone dies and you go, Oh, I wonder what happened because what you're trying to do is sort of keep it at arm's length. Oh, they, they died of diabetes. Well, I don't have diabetes, so I'll probably be okay. You know, like, or that, you know, oh, there was a, they weren't wearing their seatbelt or, you know, you try and find something. I always wear my seatbelt. It's like, I, I think we have to be more accustomed to like, I, I mean, if, if this past year didn't teach us anything, you know, how short and precious and fragile and all those things, uh, we are. And, uh, you know, we, we should be reminded of it more. So we don't, you know, forget how kind of great it is. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that's that's a big piece of things too. You know, I think um, I, I got to interject. Like I am constantly frustrated by obituaries that don't 
tell you the cause of death. It drives me absolutely insane. Right. It's never. I always wonder why. Is it because it's a suicide, or is it they just don't want to say, or what? It drives me. I guess like if somebody ODs or some yeah somebody serious, right. like any kind of the like cause of death that might have um, some kind of sense of shame. Well, I like, remember in the '90s, it would be if there was nothing, it would be AIDS. You would think, right. oh, they died of AIDS. They didn't want to put that in there. But maybe yeah, it's like drug overdose would be that. But I, you know, I, I've also seen people that you know they say they've lost their battle to, with depression, things like that. Like, uh, but yeah, it is strange. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. I guess like it's, but it's a natural human impulse when somebody's like, oh, so and so died. You automatically will go, how did they die? That's like the most natural question in the world. Like, uh, right. I don't think you should have to be penalized for wanting to know. You know, you should tell people, but. I understand there can be like a protective instinct that kicks in. You know, the survivors don't want people judging their lives. Sure, level. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a completely legitimate reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, you know, your background as a writer. You know, we have gone over the fact that you grew up in small town North Carolina. Um, but, you know, just like getting to Suwannee, like, did you always want to be a writer? Did you have like a teacher in college who gave you a nudge? Like, how did how did it work for you? Um, yeah, I was like kind of very young. I, I I think I I don't remember. Maybe it was like a teacher once said that you know you you don't have to you don't have to actually write when you're a writer. You can just kind of think. And then once you've thought up what you're going to do, you just write it down. And I thought, well, that would be that seems pretty cool. I could do that. And uh, always was fascinated by reading and, and writing. And my my mom was like a big li library person. I went to the library a lot when I was a kid, like every day I would go to the library. Um, and then, yeah, I had teachers in high school that were encouraging of me. And then at college. Um, I was, I wanted to be a poet, you know, and I was really a terrible poet. And finally, finally, some people, some teachers were kind of like, you know, maybe you should try fiction because that's, you don't seem to be good at poetry. So, uh, I tried fiction and that was, that went a little smoother, but, um, yeah. And then I, I didn't know if that was really what I wanted to do. And actually I had, uh, Tim O'Brien who, uh, you interviewed and I listened to it. I really enjoyed, um, at the Swanee writers conference, I did a, a, a workshop with him and he really was encouraging of me to be a fiction writer. I, I didn't really see myself that way. And, um, he was really kind and, and really like an amazing teacher. Um, what, what did he tell you? He was like, okay, so, he his his workshops were really interesting and, and and kind of on like a granular level like he just was very inspiring but i had like we like part of the the program the conference was we had i had like a one-on-one -on -one thing with him and he said okay do you want to ask me anything and i was just out of college you know this was like the summer after i graduated from college and i said you know i don't really know what i want to do like what should i do i know i want to write but i don't like have any experience and i, I was like you know you what you were when you were my age you were in vietnam 
And like you came back and used that experience to in your writing life to like inspire you. And uh, I said, what should I do? And he looked me dead cold in the eyes and goes, use your fucking imagination. He's like, I went off to war and I made the whole thing up. I had to fictionalize this experience for it to, to like make any sense to me. And he's like, you just take your own experiences and your own memories and you mix them with your imagination and it becomes this other thing. And I was like, okay, like this starts to be some, like, I can get into this, you know, I can get down with this. So then I, you know, I, uh, I started to kind of take it seriously and, um, went down to Mississippi and studied with, uh, Barry Hanna and uh, Tom Franklin and uh, Jack Pendarvis, a, a number of other great folks down there. And yeah, and that really kind of got me started trying to publish stories and then publishing books. So what was but, it yeah. like? What was it? I mean, I guess like a quite, uh, before we, we leave Tim O'Brien, did does he, is he aware of your publication history? Have you kept in touch with him? I don't think so. I don't think so. And I, um, I haven't been in touch with him uh, I mean, I'm very, um, uh, I'm a big fan of his and, uh, um, and his last book was really, really wonderful. I gave it to my dad and he really loved it. And Tim, I mean, I remember reading him in high school. Uh, you know, he, he seemed like, like a, a writer, like Ernest Hemingway or something like that wasn't real. Like that, the people that were in your textbooks weren't supposed to be like, real people <laughs> right right you know? they were like they were like these fictional they were like people on stamps or something it's like abraham lincoln or something and then like seeing him like in the flesh and be like just this really intelligent thoughtful like kind of interesting person and, and like that's what he did with his life it just seems so like oh I, I could do that you know i could try and uh you know think about those things and, 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 and try and write. So yeah, he, he was a big inspiration. Um, but yeah. What about Barry? What about Barry Hanna? Barry was, I mean, Barry's like, I, you know, he, he was like a, like a, like a, like a general and a, in, a, in an army or something. And we were all like, <laughs> it was like, like fighting the killers of joy or something. Like he would always talk about stuff like that. You gotta, you gotta bury the kill joy, you know, we're, we're, we're out for, you know, something deeper. And it was like watching a stand up comedy routine. You know, we would meet for workshops, whatever, once or twice a week. And we would, everybody that was in his class would just sit there and, there was no class. You were just listening to him talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. And somehow that made your writing a lot better. I don't know how exactly, but I think he just wanted you to live a little better and, and like loosen up. And somehow I think that made people's writing better. That was at Univer was the, University of Mississippi? Yeah, yeah, Old Miss. Old Miss. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of great writers uh, from down there. And, uh, Larry Brown was down there before my time. He passed away, um, just before, but, uh, the bookstore, I also worked at the bookstore down there, square books, um, which is a great place. And, you know, it was, it's sort of like this weird legendary 
little uh, like haunt for all these. You know, John Grisham was there at the same time Larry Brown was there, uh, and 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 Barry Hanna and, and Willie Morris and, and you know it, it would just be you know Allen Ginsberg would come through town or, or some you know Eudora Welty Chris. was probably in there. Uh, Eudora Welty was always there, and everybody would you know go to go drink whiskey at Faulkner's grave and, and, you know, all this and that, uh, it was a good time. Um, it's kind of like, uh, I, the, the joke I always make is like, you know, in LA, every waiter is like an actor, you know, uh, like they, they secretly want to be an actor or a director or something. And in Oxford, every waiter and bartender is like wants to be a writer. That was just, it's kind of like what, what I think Iowa city must be like, like a real writer's town, you know? Um, but it was a great place to, to sort of learn and and write and hang out. Is that where you first published? Like, was so the products of those? You know, were there were there stories that you wrote during those years, or books that you wrote during those years that wound wound up getting published? I mean, the three years of my MFA was was a painful process. I mean, I, I was a very uh, untrained not to say trained because that's the wrong word but i was an inexperienced writer and i think most it was like a three-year program and most of i would say 99 percent of what i wrote there is in the garbage uh and i it wasn't until i was out of the program that i wrote a story that was i felt worthy of anything and then you know a good time after that before i published anything uh but uh, yeah, and then eventually I, I I published a story. This is such a weird fluke thing that happened, but ESPN, the magazine, was having a contest. This was probably ten years ago, and having a fiction contest. And and I, I don't remember submitting to it. I just it must have been in some spree of submissions, you know, and like six months later some guy messaged me on facebook or you know some social media and was like is this you did you submit to this contest and i was like i think so yeah and he's like well you won it and uh it was in this you know espn the magazine like kind of airport uh magazine you'd get at the supermarket or something and so that got me a lot of exposure and got me an agent and what what was the story about? The story was <laughs> the story was about. Uh, I grew up in a very religious family and a very sports crazy family. Uh, my dad played college football, and uh, my brothers played football. A very dedicated fans of football, and I grew up going to uh, NFL football games, Carolina Panthers, and the story is about. Uh, a fictional story about a kid who um, is having a sort of religious awakening uh, on Christmas Eve with his family at an NFL football game. And uh, then he, um, I mean, I guess I'll give away the story. He, he, at the end, he jumps onto the field and stops the uh, winning field goal or, or whatever and saves the day. But, uh, yeah, it was kind of an, it was not I, I think they were looking for sports stories, but mine was a little bit of a like a kind of a satire on, uh, you know, the NFL and like football fandom. 
I think they thought it was funny. So, what uh, what school did your dad play for? He played college football. I played college football at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, and he grew, he grew up in Knoxville and was a big you know Tennessee fan. Got it. Yeah, my folks are from Louisiana. And oh, LSU. Yeah, both went to LSU, and most of my extended family lives down south in Louisiana. Oh, uh, whereabouts? Uh, Baton Rouge, New Orleans. You know. Oh, right on. And yeah, yeah. some smaller towns too, but that's basically the those are the hubs. And then I have family in Alabama and Birmingham. I have family in Virginia. Um, so I have a lot of South in my family, even though I never lived there. And it is the lingua, like especially SEC football is the lingua franca of my entire family. It's it's almost pathetic. <laughs> like we can't oh talk about God, it. Man. That's all people talk about. That is it. And, and yeah. I, I feel an obligation to keep up with it just so that I can continue to have conversations with my family members. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it, it you sort of like you, if if you give it up or you don't, like uh, have awareness of what's going on, then you're going to have nothing to say. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's like my brothers, I've seen them have conversations where that's all that they talked about. Like, you know, like I'll go visit them and it will just be about football. They won't talk about anything else. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's a very wild thing. Yeah. Like um, I, I think that was ultimately why I couldn't, be a sports fan because I felt like I wasn't, I couldn't keep up with it. It would, you know, there's just too much information to, you know, who's hurt or who's this, or who's in, who's out, who's, uh, it's just, yeah. So you're not, so you were like the family oddball. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah and there's yeah, three yeah. brothers. They all, older brother, younger brother, they all live, uh, between, you know, within 20 minutes of my parents, uh, having babies, love and life, North Carolina, uh, and I'm in New York. I was, I'm the, the black sheep, the odd one out. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I don't know. I feel like that, like I've read something once that stuck to me ever since about why, you know, a certain kind of man, I think in particular gloms on to sports and the, the, the gist was that like, you know, people feel alienated and uh, disempowered in society, you know, like socioeconomically and politically. And so they wind up channeling all this energy into these avatars for like power and success and like physical accomplishment. <laughs> um, so that like, you know, these victories on the field by these players become like proxy victories for people who feel like maybe not quite so victorious in their own lives. Um, and I guess like the question that the, the writer posed was like, imagine what our society would be like if sports fans put as much energy and attention into paying attention and to, and, and, and caring about like, for example, the political system that we live in and under as they do about like, who's hurt and who's got uh, the most touchdowns and who's got like, what's the completion percentage for the quarterback and all these different things that, you know, it's crazy the level of acumen that so many people have as fans. Like I'm kind of one of them. Like when it comes to, I, I grew up, I was born in Milwaukee. So I, I have like an unshakable addiction to the green Bay Packers. And I got to admit, I'm a little embarrassed by how much I know about that team. Like I know everything going back to 1982. 
like that's a lot of displaced energy, <laughs> you know? So anyway, it's, totally. an inter- it's an interesting theory anyway. Yeah. I mean, and it, look, I mean, where I grew up, it was like high school football. I mean, you know, there was nothing to do. It, it, it's, it was the only thing going on, you know? And, uh, yeah, it's, I, 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 I don't know. I've tried to, I think I've I, the the place where I am now is I can enjoy an individual game. I can enjoy like the art of the game, and I like and I enjoy watching football. I grew up watching. I just can't go the whole season, you know. It, it's too it's too much. It takes too much of my heart, you know. <laughs> right. I hear you. I mean, the Packers yeah. just lost to uh, Tampa Bay, and I've been like, it's it, devastating. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just getting up off of the floor. It's devastating. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I I was at Ole Miss for grad school, but you know it's SEC, and I try, you know, you try to okay, yeah, go team, and they're terrible, and you're just like, ah, oh, you know, I can't do this weekend week out. Well, that's this is where I think I part ways with the average hardcore fan is that if my team is not a winning team, like if they don't have a, a decent to better chance of winning the game, um, I'm not watching it. Uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna spend like a Sunday afternoon watching some horrible team get its ass beat. Like that's not fun for me. It needs to be at least competitive. And, uh, I have friends who would, they, they consider this sacrilege, you know, this idea that I wouldn't back the team no matter what, but I don't play that way. And besides, like, especially with pro sports, these guys are getting paid millions of dollars. Like their job is to win for me. <laughs> like, right. Like that's, that's right. That's the trade-off, you know? You get paid a king's ransom. I expect you to uh, entertain me with victory. But, exactly. Um, so you're, it's, it's three boys in Statesville. You're the middle child and uh, the black sheep, as you put it. Like you say black sheep <laughs> just because your interests <laughs> maybe diverge. Like you were, were you like a super rebellious child? Like did you have... Um, like bad behavior that would qualify you for nah. like the more traditional black sheep moniker? I, n- not any more than anyone else, I think. I mean, uh, I, I was, um, I just wasn't interested in, in, I was interested in music and books and, and, and films, not, not football. You did, know, you, did you play in or, a band? Uh, I've played in bands. Um, I'm not, currently in a band although uh bud smith is who you know uh always trying to get me into a band with him uh and if we ever make it out of this covid uh nightmare uh i hope we will play in a band but yeah what do you play not currently uh i play drums what does bud play i think bud plays guitar does he Maybe. Really? I didn't know that. <laughs> I jammed with him once on guitar for like 20 minutes, but he talks a lot about it. Uh, and he's like buying equipment. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'd love to, to be in a band. Devin Kelly is another one of our friends, writer friends. He's in a band, like a legitimate band. But um, so were you in a band always? If you are you, you play music now still? No, 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 I don't. I don't. I was just asking you because I, I f- I, for some reason, picked up on that vibe. Like I could look at you and just be like, "Yeah, I think this guy's played in a band before." For some reason, but <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I wish. I don't know what that means, but it's yeah. one of my great, like, unrealized dreams that, like, I never learned how to play an instrument, uh, or at least not it's well. Great. 
it's great. I love music, man. I love playing music. It's similar thing to like, uh, uh, playing sports. Like I, I like playing sports too. I just don't like the competitive, like, uh, attention of it. Uh, I love playing music with my friends and recording music. It's like a really interesting process and really fun, but like touring is the worst. I can't think of a worse fate. Just living, uh, living in a van and yeah, living schlepping, in a van schlepping like, all that equipment. Yeah. Eat, eating Taco Bell and like a, you know, hotel room or something. It's terrible. It's disgusting. What is, uh, what were some of the bands of your youth that like got you into music? Oh, I mean, I, it would be like boring stuff. I mean, like, like the Beatles, I mean, stuff that everybody got everybody into it. But I, I think like, um, I don't know. I mean, the Beatles were very big and Bob Dylan, just stuff that like my, my parents kind of had, uh, like tapes they had, but they listened to like country music a lot as well. Um, I was kind of like maybe like a, 70s weirdly i grew up i was very young in like the 80s and kind of came of age in the 90s but i didn't have you know somebody was asking me about this like guided by voices oh you seem like a guy that would listen to that i I was like that stuff just got skipped over me like that there was nobody listening to that kind of music in my town (laughs) you know when did did you graduate high school i graduated in 2000 okay because it's funny that you say that because i'm a bit older than you i graduated in 93 and I, my entire cultural experience, basically like music, maybe, maybe not movies, but music for sure was the sixties and seventies. Right. Like that era of musical history still is the most interesting to me. I've got like baby boomer taste in music or something, but, um, I mean, I came to other bands, like I got really into pavement in college and, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. love them. And, you know, it's not like I, I'm wide open in terms of what I listen to. But like, if I think about kind of like my musical education and I'm not necessarily bummed about it either. Like, I think you could do a lot worse than to have the Beatles and Bob Dylan and the Rolling <laughs> Stones as like a foundation for your understanding of music versus like maybe growing up in like the post-social media pop music landscape you know and having that be your foundation like i don't know if i i don't feel any sense of envy let's put it that way like i think uh i like my bob dylan you know i i stand by my fandom (laughs) yeah i mean uh yeah i it's funny like i how we experience music is just so different now like it's just like you just call out to the computer to like play something and it does it. You know, you just have this weird command of of uh and, and access to things that I just didn't have when I was a kid. I maybe I'm making it seem like I'm much older than I am, but like I just remember having to go and like discover a band in like a record store. And like, you know, you had to have some sort of other person feeding you information. Otherwise, you weren't getting it. And and now it just comes by you so fast and is gone. That's the thing that I, I think I like miss is the like like you know really like living with a an album and that that kind of thing but um and and like a sense yeah. of a sense of authorship and like that unity of uh, a particular collection of songs and a a collection of songs in a certain sequence you know you sort of lose mm-hmm. all of that that 
when I was a kid, you know, looking at like liner notes and a cassette tape or on an album cover, all of that experience is gone now. And you do lose something. And I think, I don't know, there's something to be said for the convenience and for like the, just the pure access to so much music at once, like whatever you want. Like you said, you just call it out and it starts playing, but um, there's an intimacy that's lost, you know, and a tactile experience and uh, I don't know. There's a part of me that can be sort of like an old stooge about it. I can feel like it was better back in the day. And sometimes that's the case, you know, sometimes the, you know, the old people have a point, you know, sometimes things get worse as they go instead of better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I, I think there's something too, I like about like, uh, you know, the length of a record, like, you know, like pet sounds or Abbey road or whatever, like those records, it's the same like length as a movie or something or like like a short novel. Like I, I kind of like that time frame of experiencing something like it's long enough that it feels it can feel epic, but it's short enough that it's not like you can experience it in one sitting, you know, and I kind of miss that. Like music, you don't we don't consume music like that much anymore. Um, I feel like yeah, I feel like for me, like so much of my music listening is is uh ambient like i'm often listening to music with it as like a, a backdrop to to working on writing or to working on other stuff uh or i'm like cooking dinner in the house you know what i'm saying and like it'll just be playing on the speaker uh or i'll be walking through los angeles and i'll just want to like drown out traffic sounds <laughs> um, right you know so like i think i listen to a lot of music that I guess would qualify as ambient, like no vocals or if they're vocals, they're like choral vocals or something, you know, but, um, yeah, you know, it's, I, yeah. I think I might listen to more music like hour by hour today than I ever have, but I don't know if it's that same kind of like intimate concentrated listening where I feel like there's like a connectivity between me and the musician or the musicians. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you walk in LA a lot? A ton. Really? <laughs> and I and I ride my bike. I'm like the only one. Oh yeah. I'm like the I'm the I'm very much an outlier in Los Angeles. Yeah. With regard to how much I walk and to the fact that uh I ride my bike pretty much everywhere. Like for a, a while we only had one car. Like I got rid of my car cuz I felt like I wasn't using it and I just wanted to like I don't know. I can get react, you know, reactionary around things like climate change and I was like, why do we have two cars? And do, we don't even need this car. And I can, the kids will know that, like, I have two kids. I was like, the kids will know I tried, I tried, you know, like, <laughs> I tried to, like, you know, not have a smaller carbon footprint or something. But I, right, uh, yeah. we wound up getting another car because my wife didn't feel comfortable, like, having no car at home. I have a disabled uh, child. So, like, she didn't want to be home alone with no car, which I didn't understand. Yeah, that but, makes sense. Yeah. Um, so we got another car, but I still ride my bike and, um, that's awesome. I feel like an evangelist for the cause, especially in an urban environment that streets need to accommodate pedestrians and cyclists. better. Oh, yeah. And the only way it's going to happen, I think, is if people are willing to go out and like play Frogger, <laughs> um, like somebody's got to do it, you know, like I put my helmet on and I go out there and, uh, I've got like flashing lights all over my bike and. It's a horrible city to ride a bike in, but um, <laughs> where where are you in LA? Are you on the east side or the west side? East side, east side. East so side. like Hollywood, you know, like just riding around in the mess of it. And uh, oh wow, you know, that's great, man. 
but yeah, I feel like, okay, they got to see people on their bikes to know it's possible. And then, um, you know, you got to have a few close calls and get people thinking about how they need to be watching the road. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, New York is like, like the, I, we live on 14th street and it's like, they've closed a lot of it down and it's only like buses now. And during the pandemic, it's even more like, the, like Avenue B is completely pedestrian now. And I'm hoping there's been a, like a lot of push to keep it that way. But uh, there's a lot more biking now, and uh, it's a lot better. I, I just wish the whole city was free of cars, man. I, well, that's what I was just, I, I yeah. just going to say. You know, uh, Paris, France, has been pretty radical in trying to close off central Paris to automobiles or to, like, dr- dramatically mm. limit it for that reason. And, it, and it's been working. Like, people, like, the quality of life goes up. Um, I don't think people realize Absolutely. like what a nightmare it is to live in a place where there's like just a choke of auto traffic. And I think Manhattan, which is so reliant on the subway system and mass transit post COVID or in the midst of COVID in particular, all of a sudden you've cut that off as a possibility for most people. Like who wants to ride the subway in the middle of a pandemic? So, you know, if, the world changes in some sort of permanent way, even after we get herd immunity. Um, I would, would wouldn't Manhattan be great? I mean, it's already starting to happen where you can get on one of those city bikes and cruise around, but uh, why not just have like entire thoroughfares going north and south and east and west that people can just walk on and ride their bikes on um, and get around without having to get inside of a vehicle? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really just a, like, who's the city for? And, you know, if it's not for the people living in it, then, you know, then it's just for a bunch of cars. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. So I, I think we'll see. I mean, they're, they're making moves towards that and, and it would be great to have kind of our city back. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been a weird year here. It's been a weird time as I'm sure in LA it's been, I guess you guys are, are bearing a lot of the, uh, the worst of it now, but um, I'm just very interested to see how this year will turn out, and I'm really hopeful about it. Yeah, but, I uh, just got we'll my see. first. I got my first vaccine shot. Um, oh wow! My wife and I are in like the first group. That's great uh, because of our son. Like, and what's so fucked up is like nobody told us. Like, no, like we had to like we found out sort of like secondhand from a friend who was like, "Hey, you might want to read this. Like, I think you guys can get the vaccine." Yes. And thank God she told us because we wouldn't have known. Nobody, like, nobody reached out. Like, no doctor, you know, nothing. So um, we got Uh, round one, and then now we, like, can't sign up for round two. Like, the computer system is, like, not allowing us to make an appointment. So we're just sort of crossing fingers that something's going to change. But um, I think, you know, I'm pretty optimistic that, like, by Christmas next year, things are going to look pretty different. Um, But... You know, I feel like I'm still going to wear a mask. Like if I go to the airport, yeah. <laughs> like one thing about COVID that it's made me aware of is that like, you know, masks, I used to sort of like roll my eyes when I'd see people walking through an airport in a mask. I'd be like, dude, calm down. You know, like it's okay. You know, <laughs> but now I'm like, wait a minute, you know, you're, you're protecting yourself from getting the flu, especially if you're flying in the winter or something and just airports are disgusting anyway. But I think like if I fly, I might continue to wear a mask. You know, uh, I think there could be some ways that I carry with me permanently some of the things we've been doing this past year. Oh, I, yeah, I definitely think I'll, 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 I'll keep masking up. I mean, 
I think if if masks were socially acceptable before, I mean, I guess they were, it was just I, I'm I'm a germaphobe. I, I'm I'm very happy to be suited up and you know. Uh, the New York I, City subway is disgusting. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, you're on the subway? <laughs> I'll gladly keep, keep wearing a mask. And I got to say, too, and I've mentioned this before uh, on this program, I think, is that there is something, uh, for me, temperamentally, totally enjoyable about being in public with a mask on. Uh, like wow. some of the social pressure or something that I feel or that I felt previously is removed by having that thing on my face. Like I don't have to smile at anybody. (laughs) Not that I don't want to smile, but I mean, just like, I don't know. Like it allows me to sort of like move around more comfortably somehow. I don't know. Maybe that says something weird about me, but I feel like it takes some of the pressure off. Like, is there any resonance at all in what I'm saying? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I think there's going to be like uh, a very strange thing that will happen when we really start to see other people like we used to you know, without masks on, like the facial cue thing, maybe we'll, we'll all be scowling and not realize it because we're so used to, you know, not having to give people visual cues or something. It's and a, it, yeah, it's a it, strange feeling. Well, but then there's also, and I should say too, it's more like maybe that it takes some of the pressure off to not have to make small talk rather than smiling because uh, there is that funny thing where like I'll be walking and somebody like will be pushing their like cute little baby in a stroller or something. And you're smiling and like looking at this baby and then you realize that the baby can't see that you're smiling, like nor can like the mother who's pushing the <laughs> right, stroller. Right. You know, you're just like, yeah. okay, now I just seem like a f- fucking weirdo, you know, but yeah. I think we've all had that experience by this point. But. Absolutely, dude. Yeah, for sure. So how long have you been in Manhattan for? Um, I was here, I've been here for, this will be seven years. Okay. And what prompted the move? You like finished up at Mississippi and you were like, I'm just going to go to where the action is or? No, I lived in LA for a year uh, after Mississippi uh, was working out there. And then um, uh, at the tail end of my time there, I met my girlfriend and we dated kind of long distance. I moved back to Mississippi for a while. We were sort of long. She's from New York and lives here. And then eventually I moved here to be with her. Ah, okay. um, so that's how that happened. Yeah. And do you like, do you um, have to have a day job in New York or do you ha- do you make a living solely writing or do you freelance? Like, how do you make it work in Manhattan? Uh, just a patchwork of different things. You know, I've uh, worked as like an editor. I've uh, taught here and there. Um you know, freelance stuff, uh, trying to kind of, you know, patch together, uh, where I can. And I had a, you know, a steady job teaching and that was, uh, uh, got laid off during the pandemic. So it's a kind of like weird, um, situation, but it's been nice, uh, to be able to have time off and like, right i know um but i was gonna say i was gonna interrupt you like it's not actually a weird situation it's a totally normal situation that's what's so crazy right i think i'm in that boat you know where things are a little wobbly i think some people the boat has completely capsized Um, right you know we are in it feels to me anyway like we're in this situation where uh, so many millions of people are stretched and right. something's got to happen, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, you know, um, I, I think it's, you know, I think this year the, the, the switch is going to go on and, and, and people are, people are going to get vaccinated. I mean, you're vaccinated now, like this, it's just going to keep happening. And I know there's kinks now, but they're going to, you know, one way or the other, we're going to have some semblance of, uh, normalcy at some point. And so I'm hopeful, you know, that that's around the corner. I don't know if it's sooner or later or when, but, uh, I'm hopeful. Well, I want to talk to you before I let you go about the length of your book. Like we'll bring it back to the ancient hours Mm. and I'm fascinated. I love short books. I think maybe because I am always under this like insane pressure to read because of what I do. Um, mm-hmm. I have like the, I just live with like crazy readers guilt, like always like, Oh my God, I haven't finished. And so, um, when I get a book that's short, I'm like, okay, I can actually like do this, you know, <laughs> like I'm, I'm going to be able to finish this and like actually sit with it. And it's a, it's a joy, but you know, I should say as a way of paying you a compliment that this is a short book that doesn't feel short. It packs a punch and it does what I always want books to do, which is, um, whether they're 400 pages or 120 pages, I want them to feel like they're working with a kind of efficiency, um, you know, and your book is how many pages is it? Is it 120 or is it less? It's like, yeah, just a little, a hundred and change. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just want to ask you why, um, if there's a way to answer that and then to talk about getting a book that length published, uh, as a novel, um, you know, because the, it's like this weird nebulous thing where it's like, well, what is a novel and how long does it have to be? And how, what's the word count? And I've had, I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation, uh, either being the person asking the question or the person receiving it. But you just talk about the length of the ancient hours, how it got there and, um, taking it out to market in that form. Yeah, I think, um, so I've written three novels with Melville House that are all around the same length, about 100 pages. And um, I love that length. And I, many of my favorite books are that length. Um, you know, uh, The Stranger, The Old Man in the Sea, Barry Hanna's Ray, uh, you know, The Ballad of the Sad Cafe, Carson McCullers. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I love that length. Um, for the same reason we were talking about before too, because I think it's, it's about, you know, maybe you can read it in, in one or two sittings and sort of digest it. Uh, and so I've always loved that. And, and some people call them novellas. Uh, some people, you know, the publisher doesn't want to call it a novella because I think they think that people won't, that people don't buy novellas or something. I, I, I don't really know, but, uh, I think of them as short novels. That's what I think of them as. And me personally, from like a, you know, artistic point of view, don't really think that there's, that that matters. You know, I think uh, having a bunch of different types of lengths of books is a good thing. And, and I like short books. I, I tend to read kind of one longer book and one shorter book at a time. That way I can read a lot of shorter books while I'm reading this kind of longer book. Uh, and so I like, I have a healthy appetite of those books. A lot of like poetry is like that for me. It just kind of can digest it throughout the day. And then the longer, you know, hour, uh, you know, hour long, uh, sittings I have with longer books, 
And as far as like uh, going to market with it, I think is just like Melville House being good people. I mean, they just see something in it and they believe in stuff like this and they like experimental books. They like books that aren't that don't fit kind of a mainstream thing. And like, thank God for publishers like that, Uh, you know, and there's a number of other ones that put out great stuff that wouldn't ever, ever have a chance on a major publisher. And I think that's a, you know, that's a good thing. But, um, you know, um, I, I think that this length probably is an uphill, uh, sell to a bigger press because of whatever those reasons are. I think from like a, a bookseller, I kind of understand that people want to, when they buy a book, they, they want to want it to feel substantial. But I think there's a niche of kind of literary writers that like books of all sorts of lengths. And, and that's kind of the market place well, for it. And listen, yeah, you, maybe. you mentioned uh, The Stranger. I was actually going to bring that up, um, like, irrespe- uh, like not related to uh, length, but was going to bring it up just as having some parallels with Iggy's story and the prison sequence, you know, the kind of uh, autobiographical section of the book where he's talking from jail, you know, that Mm -hmm. reminded me of Marceau, or if that's the right uh, pronunciation, you know, like, Mm -hmm. uh, was there an inspiration there? Like, were you, did that, was that in mind for you as you were writing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I love Camus. I love uh, that book in particular. Um, I love that era of French writing and European writing, the mood of that book and, and the sort of condemned man uh, narrative was similar to what I was looking at with Iggy. But I, I you know, those books, I, I, I love that. Like they're, they're really like classic books. I like plays for the same reason, like, w- w- you know, one, two act plays that you could just consume as little episodes. Um, so, yeah, those have always been my, my my favorite books. You know, a lot of H.G. Wells books are like that, short like that. Um, so, yeah, I love that form. And, and I you know, I think someday I'm going to write a longer book, uh, probably. But I sure do like this length and, and, and like this, uh, you know, type of story. So Well, I do, too. And I think that you, the story should dictate the length of the book, like the material, you know what I'm saying? Like whatever it is, exactly. it, it comes out how it's supposed to come out if you realize it well. And, um, like I said, I didn't, I only mention it just cause, uh, you know, I have, I think maybe a, a personal interest, uh, as a writer, like I just wrote a really short book that's out, uh, on the market now. And that was like a mm. question I had about it. Like, is it too short? You know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, but the truth is that, you know, it's only too short if it feels like it needs more. And there mm-hmm. are plenty of short books don't feel just, just right as they are. And I certainly feel that way about the ancient hours. So kudos to you for being like really good at compression and for fitting a lot into a small page count. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thank you. Um, are you working on anything new? Um. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of uh, writing kind of in between two ideas. Um, one's a, a nonfiction thing about a murder that happened in a town near North, where I grew up, near Statesville in North Carolina. And another thing is just 
something fun. And, and, uh, I'm just going to kind of see where it goes, but I've also been working on a bunch of short stories. Um, actually Bud and I have a, a little writer's workshop thing that we do with some writers here in the city, um, that we were doing in person, but now do on zoom. And we've been doing like a story a month. So we all have like, we've been doing it almost a year. We almost have 12 stories. So that's been really awesome. And, uh, that's a good way yeah, to, that's a good way to produce send some of those out soon. Wait, sorry. I, what did you say? I said, that's what a good way to produce. I know it's been really, really great. And, and it's a good deadline. It's a good, uh, audience, you know, it's been, it's been awesome actually. So, uh, yeah, trying to keep busy. And can anybody join the zoom group or like how, you have to be invited? I think it's like an invite only thing. No. Yeah, it's just it's just like uh like five of us now um that have just been doing it. Uh because if you want more members, I can unleash my listeners on you if you want. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll just have like an open listener Zoom and you can listen to us prattle on about God knows what. <laughs> Uh, all right, Michael. Well, listen, it's good to meet you. Uh, congratulations on the ancient hours and uh, best of luck on the new stuff. Awesome, man. Thanks so much. It's great to meet you. All right, guys, there you go. That is Michael Bible. His new novel is called The Ancient Hours. It is available from Melville House. Go get your copy. You can find Michael Bible on Twitter. His handle is at Biblical Mike. The Ancient Hours, available now from Melville House. Get your copy immediately. Go get it. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes, nearly 700 and counting, are available to you for free. It's a listener-supported endeavor. If you would like to tip your server, drop a couple of bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you have feedback on the show, you can email the show at letters at other PPL.com. If you want to get some gear, t-shirt, sweatshirt, tank top, halter top, half shirt, just go to the uh, show's official website, other PPL.com. Click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar, get some apparel. The Other People Podcast has its own official app. It, too, is free. Get the app where you get your apps. The Other People with Brad Listy app. It's a great way to listen. What else? Let me know what you think of the uh, new intro. Is this a good decision? Have I made a good executive decision? Next week on the program, I'm not entirely sure who my guest is going to be. It's a bit of a cliffhanger. It's either going to be Ahmed Najee or uh, Candace Jane Opper, both of whom are uh, wonderful writers and captivating guests. So stay tuned. The Other People podcast launched in 2011. It is now in its 10th year. New episodes every Wednesday. It's a weekly show. It's free. Occasionally, there's a Sunday episode when I can get my uh, shit together. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week.